0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today, in our 341st episode, we have a bunch of news, including another new Hadrosauroid. It's really been the year of Hadrosauroids so far, I would say, with Clodolophus.
1: You like saying that name?
0: Yeah, I went through all the effort of figuring out how to say it properly. I got to get some mileage out of it. (laughs) (laughs) We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Vagaceratops. And I have a fun fact about Jurassic Park because I realized the 25th, an- the 25th anniversary edition of the book came out, and I never did a fun fact out of that, but I came up with one that I think is pretty interesting. But before we get into all of that, we want to quickly thank our patrons for supporting us and keeping our show running. And this week, we have one new patron to thank, and that's Viadis. Thank you very much for joining. And then rounding out our shoutouts, we have Anne, Jared Copeland, A. Moose, Raptor, Jeremy Stevens. D.C. Cassandra, Trent Carbajal, Red Sox Rex, and Jurassic Jim.
1: Thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support. We've got an amazing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, and that reminds me, voting for our t-shirt design competition ends today. And I want to thank all of our listeners who submitted designs. Can't say enough good things about them.
0: Yeah, they're all fantastic. I'm definitely going to be ordering quite a few shirts at the end of this.
1: And we'll be announcing the winner in the next episode. So thank you again. I know This was a big dinosaur enthusiast community effort. And if you want to join our community so that you can chat with other people on our Discord or get other benefits like bonus content when it comes to our interviews, then check out our page at patreon.com inodino.
0: So jumping into the news, we've got our new hadrosauroid, and this one was published in Acta Paleontologica Polonica. Well, right now it's actually in press, so it hasn't been published fully yet, but it is open access, so anybody can read it. That's good. Yeah. And it was written by Albert Prieto Marquez and Miguel Angel Carrera Farias. As I mentioned before, it's another new hadrosauroid, and this one was found in the Pyrenees in northeast Spain. We're really covering the whole planet. We had Japan, Mexico, now we're in Spain. That's good.
1: Covering all the dinosaurs around the world.
0: Yeah, and it's actually kind of interesting because they they think that the dinosaurs spread from Asia to North America and then to Europe, and that's the order that we're covering these dinosaurs in. Or I should say they think this group of hadrosauroids did that. I also like that even though it was found in the Pyrenees in northeast Spain, the authors refer to it as from the European archipelago, because back then, obviously, there was no Spain. (laughs) But it probably would have been on what we now call the Ibero-Armorican Island, which is sort of that chunk of the Iberian Peninsula and a little bit of France in one area. The new dinosaur is named Phylax therocolossus, and phylax is Greek for keeper. And thera colossus comes also from Greek for thera, which is door, and colossi, which means hell. <laughs> and the authors intend the, the species and genus name to go together and become keeper of the gates of hell.
1: Wow. Was it ferocious?
0: It's very intense. You'd think that's what it would be or that it meant that it was like near something really intense or something. But the reason that they picked that name is because the fossils were found very close to the KPG boundary. So in other words, it was only a few meters away from that, you know, fiery inferno of the impactor and all that.
1: Oh, not where you want to be.
0: Yes, (laughs) very much so. (laughs) So it's only known from a single bone, and that's a nearly complete left dentary or jawbone. But that is a really useful jaw when you're talking about hadrosauroids and identifying them as a new species because they have those dental batteries and different arrangements of teeth and all sorts of things like that. So you can get away with just the one bone. It's only missing the tip in terms of its nearly completeness. The most obvious feature of it is the, quote, disproportionately massive coronoid process and, quote, what is that? <laughs> so the coronoid process, is. It, we have it on our jawbone too. So like the main bone bump that I think of when I'm thinking of the hinge is called the condyler process. That's the one that is at the very back in the top that sort of attaches. This is like basically the hinge where things pivot around. But in front of that, we've got another little bit of bone that sticks up. It's sort of like there's a bit of an indent and then it comes back up actually, in the front. And there's a temporal muscle that attaches there. And that point that it attaches to is called the coronoid process. So it's this bump that sticks up sort of close to the teeth. So like your your last molars, and then there's a bump that sticks up, but it's not the very back where the hinge is. So in this case, it's really big. In our jaw is just it sticks up behind the teeth, but in the case of phylax, it's so broad that it actually overlaps with 31% of its teeth, 31% of the dental battery. Oh, So it's really broad. It's it's pretty striking when you see it. It looks like this big old bulb <laughs> sticking up above the teeth on the jaw. It's, it's pretty interesting. It's not like it's blocking any of the teeth because again, it's a narrow thing where the muscles attach to out of the way. So it would have been covered by flesh and all that kind of stuff. But when you're looking at the fossil, it, it stands out. I believe it's the largest coronoid process that's ever been found on a dinosaur, beating out Parasaurolophus by a single percent, which was 30% the size of the dental battery. And they say that 18 to 25% is normal. So it is quite a bit bigger than normal. Parasaurolophus is unusually large as well, but this is not at all a close relative of Parasaurolophus. One other obvious feature, although maybe not entirely unique is that the tooth crowns are about 3 times taller than they are wide so they're they're pretty tall and they have two long ridges and no serrations but they are aligned at a very steep angle and because of that they think that it probably sliced its food and i was trying to figure out what they mean by slicing i think it's like scissors so they're basically shearing at a really close to, you know, straight on angle. Mm -hmm. And then so it would like shear the food in that way.
1: Rather than grinding.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's the distinction here. And it's also pretty big, although not enormous. It's about 276 millimeters long, or about 11 inches. In total, the jaw has 29 tooth sockets, 17 of which have teeth. And when you look at it, it's really interesting because since it's a dental battery, it looks like if you have a jaw that is very deep, because it is a deep jaw, Mm -hmm. and you look at it from the inside, what it looks like is that there's this big bump of extra bone on the back part of the jaw, and then it's like a rough surface on the front that's much narrower. And that big block of extra bone is actually the dental battery so this just big chunk of teeth basically hmm. in those back 17 tooth sockets but really it's like a very wide surface that's it's covering in that dental battery there are up to three teeth per socket and up to two teeth per socket are on the wear surface of the dental battery
1: so many teeth
0: it is <laughs> But it is, it's one of the ways that they determined that it's a hadrosauroid rather than a hadrosaurid, because hadrosaurids have three teeth on the wear surface, whereas phylax only has those two.
1: So it's more basal?
0: Yes. Philax was collected in the 1990s in the Figue Rola formation. And that's from the Maastrichtian, again, very close to that end Cretaceous mass extinction line. It's probably within about 1.5 million years of the mass extinction, although I think the authors would presume that it's even closer than that. And it's surprising that it's so late, because like you said, it is presumed to be very basal. It's a hadrosauroid, and around this time, it was mostly hadrosaurids that were roaming the Earth.
1: What was it doing?
0: Just being a weirdo. <laughs> It's also officially, because of that, the, quote, youngest non-hadrosaurid hadrosauroid known to date, end quote. But again, more derived does not mean more recent. This is a good reminder of that because there are ghost lineages and complicated branches on phylogenetic trees everywhere. So phylax, even though it's less derived, it is more recent (laughs) than tons and tons of hadrosaurids.
1: Yeah, it was right on that boundary line.
0: Yeah. It's also surprising since most of the European hadrosaurs are lambiosaurines, like Plodolifus.
1: Way to work that name (laughs) in again.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like that. I don't think I did that well. It should be more like Plodolifus. But Phylax is a sister taxa to Tethys hadros. That's where it came out on their phylogenetic tree, which is another non-hadrosaurid hadrosauroid from the late Cretaceous. Tethys hadros was found in Italy. And because of that, it probably lived on a different island than Phylax. They probably didn't ever meet each other. But the Tethys hadros fossils that we have are also a few million years older. So even if they were on the same island,
1: then they wouldn't have met each other.
0: Yeah, probably. It's very likely that Tethys hadros went extinct before Phylax evolved, though we can't be sure because we only have such a small sample of each of them. Interestingly, even (laughs) the authors point out this paper isn't about the biogeography or like the distribution of hadrosaurs, but we're going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> and they said that phylax aligns with the current estimate that hadrosauroids first evolved in Asia, then spread to Appalachia, also known as Eastern North America, possibly via Europe. And then true hadrosaurids evolved in Appalachia, And then eventually dinosaurs like Phylax and Tethys hadros showed up in Europe, probably on a trip back from Appalachia from that group of hadrosauroids that originally got there and then didn't evolve into hadrosauroids, evolved separately along a more basal branch into derived hadrosauroids. So it's helping to fill in that whole story of where did all these hadrosauroids come from? How do we have the same you know, Edmontosaurus relatives in Japan (laughs) that are in Canada and all over the place. They really got around. I feel like these dinosaurs are probably decent swimmers, given how much island hopping they seem to do.
1: Yeah. And adventurers.
0: Yeah. Or maybe their eggs were just especially good at surviving like long journeys across the ocean
1: (laughs) or something. Oh, that's an interesting thought. (laughs) Sending eggs. Yeah. Via waterways. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Then I've got another paper, which is unfortunately not in open access. So I base this on the abstract because sometimes I like to give more attention to the open access papers. I really appreciate them. This one is about massospondylus and how it grew inconsistently. And it was written by Kimberly Chappelle and others and published in biology letters.
1: This one was all over the news.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know why this got covered so much because it was such a sort of nuanced paleontology nerd type paper.
1: Maybe because it was about dinosaur growth. So people were like, ooh, how did the dinosaurs grow?
0: Yeah. I feel like the T-Rex growth paper, though, didn't give it, get as much coverage as this, which just seems weird to me.
1: Well, lots of other T-Rex papers <laughs> do get a lot of coverage.
0: Yeah, that's true. I even saw this in like the New York Post. I was like, when did the New York Post start covering dinosaurs? But...
1: <laughs> it all depends. <laughs>
0: yeah it's sometimes it just seems so random what ends up getting picked up but so this inconsistent growth another term for it is plastic growth and scientifically speaking plasticity is about bending when you're talking about material science or more generally when you're talking about sort of attributes of an animal for example it just means being flexible so a plastic deformation is something that bends but doesn't break in other words which is why polymers which we colloquially call plastic are the ones that can be plastically deformed. That's where that name comes from.
1: There's that chemical engineering. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it comes up sometimes. So plastic growth is very different than something like, say, T-Rex. So T-Rex follows an asymptotic growth pattern. You can also sometimes see it referred to as an S-curve. So it starts out slow, and then it gets into that big growth spurt time, and then it has that long period of minimal growth. That's the asymptote that they're referring to at the top. It's not too different than humans, except we have a way quicker asymptote after our growth spurt. T-Rex keeps growing for like a decade. Just slowly, you know, humans tend not to do that. Although I think some people do.
1: It's random, it seems.
0: Yeah. I've heard tell of people in their 20s growing.
1: I know. I always hoped I'd be one of those people. (laughs) Didn't happen.
0: You need some of these massospondylus genes, I guess, or T-Rex genes. (laughs) So... To figure out if Massospondylus had that asymptotic type growth or if they had something more plastic, they measured lags in the femora of 20 individuals, which ranged in size from hatchlings all the way up to skeletally mature adults, because we have a really good sample set of Massospondylus. And they found a lot of variability in growth rates, or in other words, a lot of plasticity in their growth rates. And this is true even in an individual Massospondylus. So what you're seeing is they might have one season where they grow a bunch, then another season where they don't grow much, and then another season following that where they grow a bunch again. And it's not a consistent increase during a growth spurt and then a decrease afterwards it's just all over the place and really weird. Mm-hmm. Presumably, they had these big growth spurts when there was lots of food available and they were just living on easy street.
1: <laughs> living large, growing large.
0: Exactly. And then when they had less food available or they were just having a tougher time living small, I guess, they just didn't grow as much.
1: It's like a weird form of hibernation.
0: Yeah, kind of. And I wonder, I didn't read the paper fully, so I'm not certain about this, but they might link it to endothermy versus ectothermy. So in other words, like something that would be typically called cold-blooded might be be able to do this type of thing, whereas warm-blooded animals tend to keep up a sustained high growth rate over time. But it could also be linked to genetic factors, I suppose. Previously, growth plasticity has been described in Platyosaurus, and Platyosaurus is significantly more basal than Massospondylus. For once, this does line up with their ages. Platyosaurus is basically from the latest Triassic, whereas Massospondylus is from the earliest Jurassic. I think they're like 10 to 20 million years apart, essentially. Which means we might be able to extrapolate to the earliest sauropodomorph ancestor, making the original ancestral trait that plastic growth rate. But it gets a little bit better than that because coelophysis individuals also have a lot of variation in their growth rates and even in their growth patterns. We've talked about before where like, in some cases, different bones appear more adult in one species while it has like you could think of it like it's got a really developed head, but a less developed shoulder in one. And then a different one has like a more developed shoulder and a less developed head. So it seems like different parts of their body are developing at different rates. Is that
1: in the species or the specimens?
0: That's all in the same species. So different specimens have just like weird, different growth patterns. Although I guess that's a good point. It's possible that if we find enough coelophysis, although we already have a lot of them, that you might be able to find some connections and say like, oh, this is all just one subspecies But that's always hard to do in paleontology. But as far as plastic growth rates go, since Coelophysis is an even more distant relative since it's a theropod, we can at least expand this plasticity of growth to Saurischians and the authors suggest expanding it to the common ancestor of all dinosaurs. There might be some other plastic growth rate dinosaurs out there that I'm not familiar with But even if there aren't, I think it's a fair assumption, unless we find a Triassic dinosaur with an asymptotic growth rate, which contradicts that assumption. So it's pretty cool. Seems like Massospondylus could grow at different rates, depending on what was around at the time.
1: Yeah, what was available, what it needed to do. It's almost like growing on command. Yeah. That'd be a fun trick. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed.
0: you can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th head over to cncc.edu/dinodig you'll get all of the details just make sure that you register online by May 31st and again that is cncc.edu/dinodig d i n o d i g bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the US economy in 2022
0: Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: All right, we've got a lot of dinosaur exhibit news.
0: Nice. I like a good new dinosaur exhibit.
1: Yeah, there's a bunch. So the first one I'm going to mention is near Dayton, Ohio. It's the National Museum of the United States Air Force. They're having a free event on June 12th called Operation Dinosaur.
0: (laughs) That sounds like something out of Jurassic Park.
1: It does. Yeah. So it'll be open from 4 to 7 p.m. on that day. And you can see animatronic dinosaurs. They've got T-Rex, Triceratops, Raptors, Stegosaurus, Carnotaurus. And they have also prehistoric themed simulator rides. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty fancy.
0: That's a lot to do just for one day for a three-hour event.
1: Right. They also have giveaways and a fossil dig and a paleontologist and geologist from Boonshoff Museum of Discovery is going to be there to answer questions.
0: Wow. That's really cool.
1: Yeah. I like those simulator rides.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of the one we did in Taiwan where we put on a VR headset on a roller coaster.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I, it was in a dinosaur ish area of the theme park, but I don't think there were actually dinosaurs that we were simulating. I think it was like a space thing.
1: Yeah, but that's kind of the opposite of the simulator rides where you're all in a room. It's kind of like Star Tours in Disneyland. Yeah, and you all sit in a room and then it moves a little bit and you feel like you're moving more because you're watching a screen.
0: Gotcha. I remember seeing one of those at the Mall of America as a kid. It was called the Mystery Mine Ride was the name of the thing. And you're in like individual chairs. It was like the 4D movie thing. Mm -hmm. And there was a dinosaur one where it was, you went back in time and there's like a T-Rex trying to bite you. (laughs) And it was super intense. I loved it.
1: Nice. Yeah. So it sounds like a fun event. In Sweet Valley Ranch in Cumberland County, North Carolina, they recently opened up a dinosaur world. It's part of this 300-acre park. There's a dinosaur trail, and they've got 30 animatronic dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, and includes rafters and T-Rex. And that's open from June 9th until August 8th. In Dickinson, North Dakota, Dickinson's Dinosaur Museum has reopened, and they got a lot of hands-on activities for kids. There's social distancing and hand sanitizer stations, but you can visit again. And the team's going to go dig up two tyrannosaur skeletons. Denver Fowler, the Badlands Dinosaur Museum curator, said that they're curled up in the ground and they're ready to airlift it up in the fall and then put it on a trailer to take it back to the museum.
0: Oh, man. The the variety of super high-tech to super low-tech ways that dinosaurs get excavated, mm-hmm. from like horses dragging a sled to helicopters airlifting them out, just, it's always fun. Those airlifts always make me nervous,
1: though. Sure. Although it would be cool to watch one. Yeah airlift a giant dinosaur skeleton. For sure. In Texas, Angelo State University opened up their new Mayer Museum. And this museum is a place for art classes and a student gallery and a room with fossils and gemstones, as well as the West Texas Collection, which preserves the history of the area. They've got dinosaur replicas throughout the building and include skeletons of T-Rex, a Guhaceratops. Bambi Raptor and other prehistoric animals. And at their grand opening, which they had recently, some of the guests dressed up in inflatable mm. dinosaur costumes because why not? As you do. As you do. So the museum's open Tuesdays through Saturdays. In St. Paul, the Minnesota Children's Museum has the exhibition Dinosaurs Land of Fire and Ice from now until September 6th. That's that traveling exhibit that we keep hearing about going to places not quite in our reach.
0: Yeah. <laughs> We've been tracking it.
1: Yep. So. Quick reminder: You learn about Troodon and Edmontosaurus and Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus. That's the fire one. And the other ones were the ice ones. And then there's a lot of interactive things.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. I guess Hell Creek makes it fire, but like Tyrannosaurus doesn't breathe fire, so I'm not sure where the the fire or the ice really.
1: I think comes it's in, it's because it's warmer where they where Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus lived.
0: I think it's for the SEO for the Fire and Ice series by George R. R. Martin.
1: Could be. It's a cool title. (laughs) It is. Dinosaurs, Land of Fire and Ice. In Wyoming, and Garrett, I wish we'd known about this when we visited. This is at the Tate Geological Museum at Casper College. Mm -hmm. They have a T-Rex skeleton there that people can visit. Yes. It's been at Casper College since 2011. It was first in an unused truck bay in the career services building. And then in 2016, it got moved to a garage-like annex next to the museum. So maybe when we were there, because that was when it would have been in that truck bay. Yeah. Maybe people couldn't see it.
0: We would have had to make nice with the collections manager and see if they would show it to us.
1: (laughs) We would have had to know it was there. Yeah. It's too bad because it's the only T-Rex skeleton found in Wyoming that will stay in Wyoming so far. It's known as Rex. It was found outside Lusk in 2005. They first saw a vertebra and then thought it was a hadrosaur at first. It took them five weeks to excavate and a custom mount to lift it out of the ground. And you can get really close to Rex. You can see a hole in the skeleton that's probably from a triceratops horn. They have orange tape marks where crocodile teeth were found with the skeleton. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you can see growth on the tailbones. And according to the museum educator, Russell Holly, that could be a sign of healing from a mating injury.
0: That's really cool.
1: Yeah. So the skeleton, is, it's missing its hands and feet and head. So Lirex won't be put on display in a standing position. Right now it's laying down and it's in its jacket and it's too big to fit in the door of the museum. It might be too heavy for the oh, floor <laughs> too. But it's possible that someday there could be an extension to the museum to give Lirex a permanent place and museum workers and volunteers are working on the skeleton The museum's free to visit, and they said if you're careful, you can touch Lyrex.
0: Wow. Yeah, those smaller museums often let you touch things that a a larger museum that would get millions of hands on things (laughs) wouldn't allow. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when we were there, they mostly had a huge mammoth or maybe mastodon.
1: They still have it.
0: Yeah, that was like the big centerpiece. And there were some dinosaur tracks and some other little things around sort of the perimeter of the museum, but definitely didn't have any huge T-Rex stuff on display.
1: It's still... Kind of off to the side, not in the building.
0: But you can see it now. hmm That's cool.
1: In Brisbane, Australia, Brick Resale Showroom is displaying Lego fossil builds by our listener and patron, Dinosaur Dave, as he's known by Brick Resales. <laughs> and he created these mini-scale builds of Lego fossils. They're on display for a couple of weeks, and it looks really cool. They include skeletons of Tyrannosaurus, Triceratops, Diplodocus, Parasaurolophus, Spinosaurus, Ankylosaurus, a whole bunch of Ceratopsians. There's like a whole area of just Ceratopsians. Yeah, And then there's a section for Australian dinosaurs. So you've got Mutaburosaurus, Australovenidore, Cambarasaurus, and then there's a lot of other dinosaurs and prehistoric animals. And a area called the Gentle Giant's Retreat, which is this really pretty tree house where they have these minifigs, the minifigures, that are looking at Brachiosaurus and other sauropods. It includes a baby with a neck that's not quite long enough to reach the leaves. Oh,
0: I need some help.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And there's no entry fee to go to the showroom. It's open Thursdays to Mondays. So if you're in the area, you can check out these builds.
0: Cool. Yeah, I looked at a bunch of the designs. I liked Mutaburosaurus and like the Australian ones. And some of those more obscure Ceratopsians are also fun to see Mm -hmm. because everybody has a T-Rex or a Triceratops. Like they make official lego versions of those but some of the more unusual ones are fun
1: yeah yeah it's really cool to see how you turn legos into these specific skeletons
0: yeah and they look they look good reminds me of that lego master builders show yeah they should do a dinosaur episode of that that would be such a cool theme
1: if they had a place for us to write we would let them know
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) viewer request please do a dinosaur themed episode (laughs)
1: They did have dragons on a recent episode. Yeah. That's close.
0: It is close, but not quite.
1: In Mishawaka, Indiana, they have two parks, Battle Park and Buter Park, where you can use an augmented reality app and see dinosaurs and other animals. Cool. Yeah, they've got these stations and you scan a QR code and then it pops up. In the photos, they show Stegosaurus and T-Rex. And I think there's also a lot of insects around. And the idea is to combine science and technology with parks and family fitness because you have to walk to the different stations and then scan them to see the different animals. Nice. Yeah, it's a fun idea. It's
0: like a digital version of Crystal Palace dinosaurs.
1: hmm So next, I recently read a potential hint about Jurassic World Dominion.
0: Spoiler alert.
1: Yes, from We Got This Covered. So apparently there's plans to, quote, have Dr. Wu create robot dinosaurs at some point in the franchise, which would presumably be used to battle their flesh and blood counterparts in a future installment to restore balance on the food chain, End quote.
0: Oh, man, that is so far out there. I don't think that's going to happen in Dominion.
1: <laughs> I was wondering that because based on what we've heard about Dominion, that seems like that's a whole lot to cram into one movie. We've
0: never heard anything about dinosaurs being robots or anything about robots, period, ever. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I, I was thinking, okay, they said in the franchise, maybe there'll be more separate shows like Camp Cretaceous type things.
0: Yeah, that could be. It, it's a cool idea. Everybody likes like mecha Godzilla versus Godzilla style battles, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not expecting that in Dominion.
1: Robots versus dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of Jurassic World, we've got a quick update about Glenn McIntosh, who worked on Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World, and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and Jurassic World Dominion. If that name sounds familiar, it's because we interviewed him in episode 189. That was shortly before Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom came out.
0: The most recent Jurassic World movie?
1: Yep. He's got this really cool new website that showcases all of his dinosaur work. Uh, He's been featured in prehistoric times. He worked on the poster for the documentary Why Dinosaurs? You can see his real too, so you know exactly which dinosaurs he worked on in the movies. One of them was Spinosaurus.
0: And I think at least one of the T-Rexes as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And it also shows other movies he's worked on. And you can see photos of his personal dinosaur art collection. So these are all photos in his house.
0: Yeah. <laughs> He's got a ton of sculptures, and he pointed out to us when we were chatting with him recently like the different T-Rexes that he has. He's got the Jurassic Park style one, but he also has one that was created to be as realistic as possible. And the first thing Sabrina said was, that one looks like a dog to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe because it had the longer face or something.
0: Yeah, it, it doesn't have the huge brow ridges. It's got a much more flat snout like most modern animals do, but then also its eyes are so much more stereoscopic because mm-hmm. it doesn't have all these extra like big bulges and rugosities on top of the snout and stuff. So when you're looking at it head on, it just looks like these big eyes. And they made say them.
1: head on without seeing all its teeth too.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you can see some of its teeth, but I think it did have bigger lips yeah. that were more covering the teeth than on the Jurassic Park one. Plus, it has a different color eyes. I feel like the eyes that they chose for Jurassic Park are like really intense Mm. compared to the ones that they picked for the uh, more realistic head.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's got a lot of theropod sculpts.
0: Yeah. I'm always surprised that they didn't end up doing the like slit eyes for T-Rex just to make it extra reptile scary. Mm -hmm. Because we don't know. I mean, it could be that they had those.
1: They might've played around with it. So yeah, it's a really cool website to check out. It's artofglennmackintosh.com and we'll have a link in our show notes.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or
1: Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Vagaceratops, which was a request from paleomike 716 via our Discord and Patreon. So thanks. Vagaceratops was a chasmosaurine ceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada. It walked on four legs. It had this parrot-like beak. And a large neck frill that curled forward, and a nasal horn.
0: A neck frill that curled forward,
1: like if I curl my fingers a little bit.
0: Oh, I see. At the top, just gotcha, top. gotcha. So yeah, I guess that is kind of common in the orines, Those epiosifications that sort of they look almost like hair folded over on the top of the frill.
1: Yeah, a like little bangs. Bit. <laughs> like I guess it. Yeah, it didn't. The paleo art, it doesn't look like bangs, but I guess you could describe it that way.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's how I think about it. But maybe I'm anthropomorphizing too much.
1: Maybe. It had really reduced brow horns, so they were more like bosses than horns. And it had a large snout with a broad short horn. Its frill was shorter and more square-shaped compared to the frills of other chasmosaurines. It was wider than it was long. Hmm. And it had smaller parietal fenestrae compared to other ceratopsids, so two large holes in the frill that were probably covered by skin. As for the, the bangs part <laughs> of the frill, it had 10 epioccipitals, the small bones surrounding the frill, and eight of them were flattened and curved forward and upward. So if you think about your, I guess, your, if you're curling your fingers inward to your palm, that kind of thing. Vagaceratops was herbivorous. There was a complete maxilla found that and they estimated it had about 28 teeth. Alex Tirabasso, an artist for the Canadian Museum of Nature, made 3D models of Vagaceratops to see if ceratopsians walked with their legs sprawled or with their forelimbs like pillars beneath them or somewhere in between, and he found that the in-between posture worked the best. So Vagaceratops and its relatives probably walked with their limbs slightly bent.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, we've heard about that a little bit with Ceratopsians and that it seemed like they were actually a little bit sprawled. So that simplification that dinosaurs didn't ever sprawl at all isn't really true Mm because we think Ceratopsians did, at least with their front legs.
1: The type species is *Vagaceratops urvinensis. It was originally described as a new species of Chasmosaurus, as Chasmosaurus urvinensis in 2001, and that was by Robert Holmes, Catherine Forster, Michael Ryan, and Kieran Shepard. And at the time, they named a new species in part because of its broad snout and the low, not really existent brow horns. In, in place of the brow horns are this pit or rugosities that may show bone resorption, they said, and also the frill with the curling parts of the frill. Then the name changed to Vagaceratops irvinensis in 2010 by Scott Sampson and others. And that genus name means wandering horned face. The genus name, Vagaceratops, refers to it being a close relative of Cosmoceratops. And the wandering part is because Cosmoceratops was found much further away in Utah in the US.
0: Cosmoceratops, I always think of as having bangs <laughs> with its curled, <laughs> I <guess. epiosifications. laughs>
1: So in the 2010 paper by Scott Sampson and others, they found that Cosmoseratops and Vagaceratops had similar derived frills with the fenestra, the, you know, the holes in the frills and then the curving forward bones. And they found Cosmoseratops and Vagaceratops to be sister taxon and not closely related to Chasmosaurus. Vagaceratops, I should also mention, was named in the same paper that named Utahseratops gettyi and Cosmoseratops Richardsoni. And if you want to hear more about those dinosaurs, we talked about Cosmoceratops in episode 173 and Utah Ceratops in episode 65. Vagaceratops was found in the Upper Dinosaur Park Formation, so it's much younger than Chasmosaurus belli and Chasmosaurus russeli. The type specimen was found by Luke Lindo near Irvine, Alberta, and then collected by Juan Langston in 1958. It includes most of the skull and the postcranial skeleton in an upright, crouched position. It was found in one block, except for the snout, which fell to pieces before it was discovered and collected separately. The skull was mostly complete but fragmented, and the postcranial skeleton was nearly complete, minus the tail. The skull's made up of several hundred fragments.
0: Oh, jeez, that must have been fun to put back together.
1: Yeah. Vagaceratops was thought to be an adult because of a lot of coossifications. It was tentatively thought to be a chasmosaurus belli based on the shape of the partially exposed frill, but it actually remained in storage in jackets until the 1980s at the Canadian Museum of Nature.
0: It often happens if you think it's an existing species.
1: Mm-hmm. Then Langston and Russell started preparing it in the late 1980s as part of a debate about ceratopsian and forelimb posture. And they found, oh, this is a new taxon.
0: Yeah, there aren't a ton of well- Preserved postcranial skeletons of Ceratopsians. So that makes sense that they were like, what do we have lying around? You know, where we need limb bones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They probably didn't have a ton to choose from.
1: They did find two additional specimens in the same area that were referred to, well, back then, Chasmosaurus urvinensis, but those weren't limb bones. One was a crushed skull and another was a fragmentary skull. It's probably not too surprising. There's a lot of debate around Vagaceratops and whether or not it's a valid genus. Some scientists have said that they think Vagaceratops is an adult form of Cosmoseratops. Others have said that they think it's more closely related to Chasmosaurus, and then others say it was a sister taxon to Cosmoseratops. In 2016, Campbell and others found the frill of Vagaceratops was enough to make it distinct, but they found Chasmosaurus and Vagaceratops to be in a clade together. They did not attribute the other two skull specimens to Vagaceratops, and they said that they showed individual variation within Chasmosaurus belli. In 2019, James Campbell and others looked at Vagaceratops and tentatively reassigned it to Chasmosaurus, and then said, well, more fossils are needed to confirm or refute. They also said, quote, the interrelationships between Chasmosaurus urvinensis, Chasmosaurus belli, and Chasmosaurus russelli remain unclear, end quote. And they said they wouldn't formally assign the two skulls previously referred to Vagaceratops urvinensis to Chasmosaurus urvinensis and reassign them to just Chasmosaurus species. Hmm. And in a phylogenetic analysis, it was found that Chasmosaurus and Vagaceratops were in a monophyletic clade.
0: Which is why they ended up just getting rid of the Vagaceratops, it sounds like.
1: Not everyone has gotten rid of Vagaceratops. <laughs> so in a paper from last year, 2020, Denver Fowler and Elizabeth Friedman Fowler, their paper was on transitional evolutionary forms in chasmosaurine ceratopsid dinosaurs. They referred to vagaceratops, well, throughout the paper, sometimes they referred to it as vagaceratops parentheses chasmosaurus urvinensis, and then sometimes it was vagaceratops urvinensis. And they hypothesize that Vagaceratops and Cosmoceratops show the most derived and successively youngest members of a Chasmosaurus lineage.
0: Wow. So this is still hotly contested very Mm -hmm. recently.
1: Yeah. So maybe there'll be more papers in the future about Vagaceratops.
0: So now, before we get into our fun fact, I'm just going to quiz you real quick. Okay. How many dinosaurs were in the first Jurassic Park movie? And I mean, like actual. Like living, breathing, moving dinosaurs, not including birds, non-avian dinosaurs. In the movie. Yeah, like different different not, types. Yeah, not individuals, different species. Okay.
1: Um, I wanna say eleven.
0: Yeah. So I was thinking that it was in that ballpark too of like ten or so, maybe mm-hmm. a dozen. There's actually only seven.
1: Well, eight was my other guess.
0: <laughs> you would have been closer. <laughs> Yeah, so I I could have sworn that there were more dinosaurs in there, but they really made the most of the dinosaurs that they did have in the movie.
1: Yeah, same with the amount of time the dinosaurs are on screen. I remember we talked about with at least one other person how there's actually not much screen time of dinosaurs, but they feel like they're always there
0: yeah they really made the most of like very few dinosaurs and very few like you mentioned like moments with the dinosaurs you by the way they shot it you're just constantly thinking about like imagining the dinosaurs Mm -hmm. in these different scenes
1: because they're the characters are constantly thinking about them and then you you hear them or you're looking out for them.
0: Yeah, so like for example in that opening scene where they show the brachiosaurus and there's some parasaurolophus in the foreground and they're like walking and there's like a group of them and the you know Alan Grant takes off his sunglasses all dramatically and everything. Mm-hmm. I had thought that there were a whole bunch of different dinosaurs there. I thought there was like Parasaurolophus and Stegosaurus and like Triceratops. And it was like this huge collection, but it's really just two different dinosaur species. Oh, there's
1: not even Stegosaurus?
0: No. Yeah, there's no Stegosaurus there. Mm. I, I could have sworn there was a Stegosaurus there, but it's just Parasaurolophus and Brachiosaurus in that scene. Interesting. So there's no Stegosaurus in the first movie at all. And I should be very clear. Seven dinosaurs that are like physically alive and moving around and living and breathing,
1: right? Because they mention dinosaurs like um, on the embryos that are taken in yeah, and yeah, in other like, places. And
0: you know, Alan Grant mentions other dinosaurs when he's at the quarry and he's digging, and the kid is mentioning dinosaurs all the time too. So, like the ones that they state, like that are in the script, <laughs> there's a lot more than seven. But there's actually only seven dinosaurs that you see.
1: Okay, so we know Brachiosaurus from the opening scene. Mm hmm. Also Parasaurolophus. Yep. Even though until recently we were thinking that Stegosaurus was also in there. And I don't know why, other than maybe from far away, they have a <laughs> similar ish body shape.
0: Yeah, like the head crests line up with some of the other backs and it makes it look like plates, maybe. That's yeah. the best excuse I can come up with, at least.
1: I was thinking like the rounded Parasaurolophus back. Yeah. Mm hmm. Okay, so Parasaurolophus and Brachiosaurus, T Rex, obviously, Rexy, Velociraptors, Gallimimus, that's five. Oh, Dilophosaurus, <laughs> Nedri. Yep. What am I missing? It's a seventh one.
0: Did you say Triceratops?
1: Oh, right. Triceratops. <laughs> the sick Triceratops.
0: Yep. Yeah, one of the best puppets, I think.
1: So realistic, it fooled some people.
0: Yes. Yeah, a lot of people with memes. And of those, the reason I was looking into this fun fact is I was curious, comparing the book to the movie, how many of the dinosaurs are from the Jurassic? Because I often lament how Jurassic Park should really be called Cretaceous Park, because most of the dinosaurs are from the Cretaceous. And out of those ones you just mentioned, five of them are from the Cretaceous and only two are from the Jurassic, Mm. with none from the Triassic, which means over 70% of the dinosaurs you see are Cretaceous. Which really makes it more of a Cretaceous park. The only two being from the Jurassic are Brachiosaurus and Dilophosaurus. All the other ones are Cretaceous. Okay,
1: okay. But Brachiosaurus is the first one you see. So. Yeah,
0: but you see Parasaurolophus pretty much the same time, and that one's Cretaceous.
1: No, but Brachiosaurus <laughs> is that epic scene where it's.
0: <laughs> they walk up to it and everything. Yeah, they
1: walk up to it and it rears up.
0: That's true. That is a pretty iconic scene. But I always think of the, the moment slightly afterwards where they're looking at the valley of all of them and you see like a couple of Brachiosaurus coming out of the water and then the Parasaurolophus drinking at the watering hole and all that stuff.
1: I guess because sauropods aren't your favorites, so here you're looking for the next <laughs> thing.
0: I just liked the whole grand scheme of it and like just the, the vastness of that field full of animals rather than just one individual. But in any event... In comparing it to the book, there are tons of conflicting results. And in fact, we've heard from lots of people how different books have different dinosaurs in them. Sometimes they like swap out one dinosaur genus for another one. pro
1: versus Compsognathus.
0: Well, sometimes it's way more than that. Like a podosaurus becomes other sauropods and things like that. Or like, I see a lot of references to Euoplocephalus, the ankylosaur being in there. But the book I got, I got the 25th anniversary ebook so I could search through it for the different dinosaurs has no mention of euoplocephalus whatsoever or any other ankylosaur. So it's just like completely missing from the book, at least this version of it. I believe the other people that say it's in some books, but it's not in the 25th anniversary one. And so I went through it and I think I found all of the dinosaurs that were in that book. I might've missed one, but I'm only including the alive dinosaurs in the park again, because I don't want to be comparing like what was written on computer screens and vials of embryos and stuff like that. To my count, there are an even dozen living dinosaurs. I think that was your guess for the movie, wasn't it? I said 11. Okay. <laughs> so you're close if you're talking about the book. Mm-hmm. Still way less than I expected. I thought there were a lot more dinosaurs in the book than there actually were.
1: They were in the background. What do you mean? Like you were saying, the vials and oh, true. people mentioning them, but they weren't interacting with them.
0: Yeah, that's true. So there were a lot more dinosaur names. I think there are You could almost double it if you include all the dinosaur names on vials and in museums and stuff that they went to in the book. But the book is actually missing two that are in the movie. It's missing Gallimimus. We talked about that with Jack Horner and Phil Tippett both, I think, and how they wanted to include something fast running and show that sort of ostrich likeness of the dinosaur.
1: Birdiness of the dinosaur.
0: And the flocking and all that. Yeah, it was great. It was a very good decision to include that And then the movie swapped in Brachiosaurus for your favorite Mm Apatosaurus, which was originally in the book. I think that was also a good idea because that more upright posture of like Brachiosaurus Giraffetitan Mm -hmm. does play a lot better on screen. But in total of those 12, five of them are from the Jurassic and that's being charitable. (laughs) And six of them are from the Cretaceous. So it should still be technically, if you're counting living dinosaurs, Cretaceous Park, but it's way closer to being Jurassic Park, there's a lot more Jurassic stuff happening. And in case you're curious, there's the one from the Triassic, Procomsignathus, then five from the Jurassic. The four that are missing are Stegosaurus, Apotosaurus, and Dryasaurus, and I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt there because they refer to it as a Dryasaur, and I'm assuming it's Dryasaurus. If it's some other Dryasaur, it could be from the Cretaceous because they span the Jurassic-Cretaceous boundary. And also Othnelia, thrown in an unusual one there. Mm -hmm. From the Cretaceous, there are six dinosaurs. Missing Galliminus. Oh, also missing Parasaurolophus. So there's two missing from the Cretaceous, which are in the movie, but not in the book. But there are three in the book that aren't in the movie. So there's the Hypsilophodont, also known as Hypsies. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) talks about copies. Nobody ever talks about the Hypsies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a really weird name. It sounds name. weirder. It sounds like hippies, but it's hipsies. But
1: also just hips.
0: Yeah, it's it's a strange name. But is, I mean, saying hypsilophodonts is kind of awkward. So I could see why they went with hipsies. There's also Myasora, Not too surprising since they were originally supposed to be in the Egg Mountain area where myasauro is from. It's kind of weird that they didn't include that in the movie since supposedly that was where they were getting a lot of the stuff from. And then there's also Microceratus which is a weird choice because that is a wasp. They probably mean microceratops, which is not a wasp. I don't know if at the time it had been corrected yet, but saying that like there was a scene where they were trying to scare off or make a group of microceratists scatter. If it was wasps, (laughs) that wouldn't work so well. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's probably microceratops. So in general, both of them, more Cretaceous dinosaurs than Jurassic dinosaurs should probably be called Cretaceous Park but the book is a little bit closer than the movie is. However, in both the movie and the book, the focus is almost completely on T-Rex and Velociraptors, which are both from the Cretaceous, with the exception of, in the book, they also talk a lot about Procompsognathus, which is from the Triassic.
1: <laughs> there you go. You average the two and you get the Jurassic.
0: <laughs> yeah. It should really just be called Mesozoic Park or like Dinosaur Park, but I think Jurassic Park had a better ring to it, so they went with that. So in the end, I was actually expecting there to be more dinosaurs from the Jurassic in the book than there were from the Cretaceous, but it turned out by a narrow margin, there were still more dinosaurs from the Cretaceous than the Jurassic. And if we added euoplocephalus in whatever version that has, then it would just swing it even farther to the Cretaceous. <laughs> <laughs> or if the Dryosaurus was not a Dryosaurus and some other Dryosaur from the Cretaceous, then you've, you've really skewed it even farther to Cretaceous.
1: I don't know if Jurassic Park rolls off the tongue better than Cretaceous Park or if we're just so used to saying Jurassic Park at this point.
0: That's a good point, because when I'm thinking about the journal Cretaceous Research, Mm -hmm. I think that's like a a fantastic title because I've been reading it for six or seven years now. Whereas if there was a journal called Jurassic Research, which there might be, but it sounds weird to me because I'm always reading Cretaceous Research. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's probably more familiarity than the actual... Value of Jurassic versus Cretaceous. Cretaceous was really the most exciting period. It's when all the like all the ankylosaurs evolved, all the big titanosaurs. It doesn't have a potosaurus, but most of the really amazing wacky dinosaurs are in the Cretaceous.
1: Yeah, it's not bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or you go with the Triassic or the Permian or something with the even weirder early evolution stuff.
1: Get something against Brontosaurus and a potosaurus? Huh? I don't. <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to join our growing dinosaur enthusiast community, check out our page, patreon.com slash Dino. Thanks again. And until next time.